Four ways understanding neuroscience can help your SEO with Julia Panozzo. The InSearch SEO podcast is brought to you by SimilarWeb, helping you build better SEO strategies with digital intelligence, insights, and data. Hey, it's David. What does neuroscience have to do with SEO? And how can neuroscience help SEO? That's what we're discussing today with a lady who, before working in digital marketing, obtained an MSc in Cognitive Neuroscience and Clinical Neuropsychology. She now runs her own agency specialising in neuroscience research and driving customer acquisition tests informed by cognitive patterns and bias. A warm welcome to the InSearch SEO podcast, Julia Panozzo. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming on, Julia, where you can find Julia over at neuroscientive.com. So, Julia, what does neuroscience have to do with SEO? So, uh, neuroscience, for those who are unfamiliar with the topic, is the study of the brain and the nervous system in the attempt of uncovering the behind the scenes of how humans think, make decisions, behave, and so on. So, as SEOs, because we're always trying to reach the user behind the screen at the end of the day, uh, it's quite beneficial to to know how our users make decisions and it can help us frame information in a better way for better processing. So there's different ways actually that neuroscience can help us as SEOs. Uh, we got four steps today. Uh, would you like me to carry on with that? Yeah, absolutely. So today you're sharing four ways um, understanding neuroscience can help with SEO. So starting off with number one, getting and retaining attention. Absolutely. So the first thing at the end of the day when we're talking about SEO is like we're trying to get the user attention because we're competing with a number of other results on the SERP. And the same sort of competition for attention we find in the normal world, right? At, at, the, at the moment, for example, I am deciding to focus on this conversation to make it a great podcast, but there are so many other stimuli around me and the same goes for you, David. And for example, I got kids screaming outside. I could decide to focus <laughs> on that. But the way that we select certain stimuli for further processing is a process called selective attention and is determined uh, by internal uh, motivation. So for example, you know, when you need to focus on something and you know that like as your internal motivation, uh, but there's also external stimuli that we don't even realize, but they uh, elicit this sort of attentional shift towards a stimulus. So, for example, if we're talking about, you know, having to scroll at all the results that we have on the SERP, there's different features that we react to as humans, and they have been highlighted in neuroscience studies. So some of these are cognitive biases that we're, we can expand on later as well. And some of these are the perceptual features of how the result looks. So we react to, uh, for example, faces, so emojis. That's been something that, um, that has been highlighted to elicit a particular pattern of activation called the N170, which is, yeah, basically a pattern of activation, which is observed in reaction to faces, faces configuration and emojis as a result. So I always try to tell my SEO uh, colleagues to test emojis, although obviously like it goes if it aligns with your brand. Uh, because if you're, a, I don't know, a financial super serious brand, it might be misaligned with your brand voice. 
but there are definitely a way to get the attention on, on the SERP. And sometimes Google might decide that they're not relevant to the query, so they'll cut them off. But in other, like if, whether it's on the SERP or it's in the content or in, or in CRM, if you're involved at any, like if you have your own brand and you're uh, sending out emails, that's something that definitely captures the attention. And the other way that we react to, the other thing that has been, that's been highlighted uh, and has been shown to elicit other patterns of activation that are observed in anyone really, uh, regardless of our backgrounds or of our, and any kind of like other factors, is when we're presented with a stimulus that is not the one that we expect. So for example, this is called the mismatch negativity. It's a really interesting topic. I recommend going and read about it because it's amazing. But basically, whenever we, in a, for example, in an array of stimuli, so in an array of results, we kind of get used to, you know, what the results look like, but there's a not, an odd stimulus, a not result. There's something that is something we don't expect, we react to that. So our attention goes directly to that stimulus. I would imagine that um, you, I mean, you're saying uh, you potentially test using things like emoji, but I would imagine that if every website starts doing the same thing, then it um, lacks the cutting edge and you, you don't get the attention then. Exactly. That's, uh, that's a great point because if anybody, if everybody does the same, then this effect kind of, yeah, it dies down because we're not presented with something unexpected anymore. So at that point, if everyone was to use the same strategies, so for example, that happened with the SERP features like uh, reviews or, um, you know, the recipe results, they all look the same right now. So what can you do as a brand to differentiate? Yeah, to stand out. And I would recommend to obviously look at a SERP, look where your competitor are not, like what are some of the, the features that your competitors are not investing in. At the time, you know, FAQs for recipes was not really a thing. Now FAQs are sort of irrelevant um, for, for Google since they are not showing that anymore, like on the result or like they're not showing it with that much prominence. But then you have to find as a brand what makes you stand out. And a lot of brands will be really resistant to that because they're always trying to do what the, their competitor does. But then it might, you know, make you play on the safe side, but then it's not making you stand out and it's not getting the attention that you would get automatically otherwise. So the second way that neuroscience can help your SEO is organizing information for easier processing. Yeah, absolutely. Because we need to understand that even as SEOs, we're choice architects. So we have the power and the duty to organize, to organize information in a way that our user can comprehend and can process faster. Because even when we're doing a search, when we're consuming content as users, there's so many things that happen at the same time. It might be a search that we do while we're working, while we're walking or talking to a friend. So even when we put so much effort in creating content as marketers, the user will only like really consume a bit of that. So we need to make sure that we, that we follow some guidelines, I guess, to uh, make their processing faster. So uh, the way that I, uh, that I like to uh, talk about this is by explaining some of the cognitive biases that enter the domain of uh, information processing. Uh, one of these, for example, is the serial position effect, which states that it's made up, up of two sub-effects. One is called the primacy effect and one is the recency effect. And the primacy effect states that given a list of words, we, re we uh, remember 
the most the ones that are presented at the start. And the recency effect states that given the same list of words, we remember the ones that we uh, see last. And the same goes for the way that we consume content. Uh, we remember the first and the last information we're presented with. It goes with how we see words, how we see elements as well uh, on the page. So if we have an e-commerce site, for example, try to place, you know, the most prominent product, the one that is most important to you first, for example, try to bring your uh, value props earlier in the page, because that's what, you know, as humans, we remember more and CTAs place them at the bottom and at the start, like try to play with those because we cannot react to everything at the same time. And those position effect has shown to be quite helpful in marketing as well. Lovely. I think all these phrases that you're sharing here is giving the listener a lot of homework to go away and yes. research themselves. So great job there. But let's move on to point number three, which is facilitating decision making. Yes. So when we're making decisions, as I mentioned, like some of these decisions are sort of implicit, like when we have attentional shifts uh, that, that we react to, or like that are elicited automatically. But some of these decisions are more overt. So for example, when we are evaluating something on, on a page, when we're evaluating deals, et cetera. So that's when heuristics come into play, which are these sort of shortcuts for better decision-making that ensure us that we can go ahead with some decisions, even though we don't have the entirety of, you know, options and outcomes studied. So some of these heuristics that are very common in marketing are, for example, scarcity heuristic uh, is when as e-commerce or as travel brands actually do use it quite, quite well and quite often is when we react to something, we place more value to something that's perceived as running out or scarce or exclusive. So we don't want to miss out as humans. We really want to make sure that we don't miss out on that. So we react to, to those like last remaining or uh, just one room left at this price. One thing that I would recommend is obviously like highlight that kind of information on your website, but please, please do not trick your users. Only do it if it's real, because otherwise once, like from a legal perspective, it's not okay. Yeah, your legal department will hate you, but also users remember that. Like if, if they know, if, if they realize that, you know, they are being tricked, they won't come back to you. That's another bias, negativity bias. Another heuristic is risk aversion, for example. So given two options with similar returns, we tend to go for the option that present the less amount of risk involved. So for example, it's when we decide to go with uh, travel insurance, even if it means we might not save on the journey. It's when, you know, we apply an, or when we try, for example, to pay all upfront instead of paying in installments or vice versa, it depends on like which one is less risky for us. Again, like this is stuff that brands can do and should highlight uh, in their messaging from very early on. So if you have free delivery or free returns, for example, this is great. Now you can highlight it in schema markup as well. And that's another way that SEOs can uh, leverage those sort of heuristics. And, but there are so many that um, it's difficult to know which one to highlight for the right customers. So how do you know which one to actually really focus on as the likely one that's going to impact the decision making to purchase? I think testing is a good way to do that. You don't need to apply it to every page all at the same time. You can just test on a number of pages. Uh, that will tell you already, for example, if you place, I don't know, free returns on the SERP, this click-through rate 
could indicate already uh, a win or a lose. Like it's testing is always the, the way to go for me. Another way is looking at the queries that always come up in Google Search Console uh, or even in customer support. If there's like specific things that keep on coming up and that highlight some sort of security that your users are looking for and you're not providing, that's always an indication of what heuristic or what um, messaging should be used. At the same time, what, one of the things that I like to uh, point out is that, you know, we use heuristics to sort of get our user, but we shouldn't overuse them. Like we shouldn't trick them because at the end of the day, like we, we want to think that we have like the control over like, whenever we, we talk about marketing psychology, we think that we have uh, all of this power over there, our users, but our users are not stupid. Like <laughs> we can't have them jump through loops of fire. It's like we're making things easier for them to process and to decide on, but we cannot trick them because they will remember that at the, at the very end. Sure. Okay. So don't say uh, it's a product launch, limited quantity. Um, we're going to sell out today and then tomorrow say, oh, we found another hundred. We've got another hundred that we can sell. Yeah, I think it, you know, like people will realize that they're being tricked. And sometimes even if they know they will, but it depends on the, like they will engage with that. But I guess it depends on the level of investment, because if we're talking about, you know, when only time and attention is at stake, then the investment is lower and I'm fine as a user being tricked because it's not like I'm not putting my money towards it. I'm not putting huge amount of time towards it. So if I'm buying, I don't know, something that costs three pounds, I'm fine being told that it's the very last remaining on earth, even though I know that it's not true. Uh, however, if I'm talking about, you know, like buying a house, I won't fall for that. Like I, that's when heuristics don't really work in that sense, because, you know, we're prone to evaluate the options. Yeah. In a more thorough way. And I think in that case, we rely more on what other people think, what other people validate and not like fake people, real people. So that's when the role of social proof comes in. Great point. Let's move on to your point number four, which is converting and retaining customers. Yes. So as I uh, introduced uh, right now, I think social proof is one way to do it. Like that's when you can really help a brand convert. Uh, but the other thing is getting emotions involved. And that goes for every stage of the journey. There is another way that we can leverage as brands to uh, connect with our customers with is becoming familiar to them. Like we got these other, another heuristic that um, there's so many, like don't even get me started, but like one of these is familiarity. So we tend to go for what we know already because it saves us so many cognitive resources, right? And uh, we don't need to evaluate all of the other options. So if we make sure that we connect with a user and a customer in a way that we become familiar to them, then they'll come back to us. That goes, for example, not only on, you know, being sure that we're available and we're everywhere and they see us everywhere and they have a nice experience, but it also has to do with how we communicate with them in international markets, for example, because if we use machine translated content, you don't sound familiar. You sound like an imposter, like you sound not trustworthy. And that's very hard to react to that. Like, again, like neuroscience studies have highlighted how familiarity, familiar stimuli elicit a skin conductance response, which is, you know, something we don't realize, but it's like, for example, when you hear a familiar song and you have your, you know, like, and you have um, goosebumps, that's sort of like a manifestation of psychological arousal. And that goes for other familiar stimuli as well. So 
It's the gut feelings that can help a user become a customer and come back to you. Let's finish off with the Pareto Pickle. So Pareto says you can get 80% of your results from 20% of your efforts. What's one SEO activity that you would recommend that provides incredible results for modest levels of effort? So I think this is not going to sound groundbreaking, but I think we should cover it because a lot of brands and a lot of SEOs are uh, focused on on the transactional queries because that's where, you know, they think and they're right that the money making is. However, I would say dive into your brand queries that are informational as well, because a lot of the time our journeys as customers and as users are stopped at the checkout level because we're not too sure about certain aspects of the payment, for example, the delivery, the returns. And those might not seem like money-making queries, but they are because they're the last step between having a user and converting them into a customer. So yeah, definitely dive into your branded uh, queries. I've been your host, David Bain. You can find Julia Panozzo over at neuroscientific.com. Julia, thanks so much for being on the Insert SEO podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. Check out all the previous episodes and sign up for a free trial of the Similar Web platform over at similarweb.com.